Good morning. I got to say, you guys sing pretty good with an extra hour of sleep. (laughs) If only we could just do that every week, right? Um, I do want to welcome you here. If um, this is your first Sunday, if you're new, uh, welcome. It's an honor and privilege for us to gather together as the Lord's Church. And uh, uh, I would just tell you this, uh, I'm so proud of this church. It is imperfect, but good. Uh, It is uh, growing and yet healthy. Uh, God has been very kind to us. And uh, I I would like to just say too, as one of your pastors, this this last month, the month of October is uh, Pastor Appreciation Month, and you guys loved us up good. And uh, we've had just many, many treats and kind words and uh, just thoughtful cards and things, and it really is a privilege to serve you here. Uh, So thank you for the honor that you uh, gave to us this week or this last month. And um, if you would, open your Bibles. We're going to continue on in uh, the Olivet Discourse. Actually going to wrap it up today. So if you turn to Matthew chapter 25. Uh, We've been looking at the Olivet Discourse really for about the last three weeks. It is uh, this teaching by Jesus on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem, looking across the Kidron Valley. It began when the disciples asked the question about Uh, or sort of drawing Jesus' attention to the beauty and the splendor of the temple. And he told him, of course, this thing's going to come to the ground. And that sort of set in motion for them a concern about the end of the age and about a coming apocalyptic time. So they began to ask questions about that. And Jesus uh, taught them about what was to come. Uh, This is the fifth and the final message of Jesus uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, as we've talked about. Uh, Matthew has organized his gospel according to five sermons. The first being the Beatitudes, starting in Matthew 5. And so what began as a, uh, a conversation about blessing and about how one enters into the kingdom of God has now developed to the, this final message of, of the Olivet Discourse, on, which began with the woes and kind of what if the kingdom of God isn't embraced and one doesn't choose to live within it. Where does that take us? And so that's kind of what we're wrapping up here. The fifth and final sermon of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, the Olivet Discourse. And what we find in this last uh, portion here in chapter 25 is that he brings his sermon to a close with three kind of dramatic pictures to punctuate his teaching. And that's oftentimes what parables do. Two of these pictures are parables and one is kind of a forward-looking vision of what is to come. But in each of these final three points, he informs the disciples of Jesus about their posture of readiness for the Lord's return and for the arrival of the kingdom. And so that's what we're going to be seeing uh, this morning. And the first point that we're going to see from chapter uh, 25 here is this. Christian, be prepared to endure. To endure. By all appearances, Jesus seems to be teaching us that his return will be delayed and that therefore our wait will be prolonged. And so we had, be better, we had better be ready to endure. Look at verse 1 with me. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. That's key there. A long time in coming. And they all became drowsy and 
fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who will sell oil and buy some for yourself. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Quite a story, isn't it? Uh, I have to unpack some of it. I think there's a few things that are sort of culturally anchored that we need to pull forward a little bit. The first point is this. At a Jewish wedding, it was the groom and not the bride that was the central feature of the wedding. And we need to kind of know this or we're going to invert a lot of things in the scriptures because in the sort of American culture, the feature of the wedding is the bride, right? She has the beautiful white gown with the long train. I mean, she has bridesmaids and they have lesser, you know, dresses, right? So as to not show up the bride. Uh, The groom and the groomsmen are effectively wearing the same thing. Kind of like if the groom were to go down in a heap, you could just step the next guy up and he could take his place. We can move along as though nothing had happened. They look like candy from a Pez dispenser just to move forward, you know. So that's what's happening in our weddings. The bride is the, when she walks in, everybody stands. It's all about the bride. And uh, we've, I'll just leave it there for now. We get in trouble. But in the Jewish wedding, it was the groom who was the focal point. And that is why when we find in the scriptures, uh, God sort of referring to himself frequently in these ways, he refers to himself as the groom who is coming for his church, the bride. We need to know this so that we don't overinflate our sense of value here, thinking ourselves to be the prime feature in this relationship. God is. We're honored that our lives are joined to his. He is the groom and the central feature of this union of which we are graciously a part. He has drawn us to himself and drawn us into his life. He's not just an accent to our lives. His life is central and we're drawn to him. Next here we have this, maybe a question about, what is, what's this bit about ten virgins here? Okay, how are we supposed to feel about this? Is this something we should be embarrassed about? You know, should we not really be talking about this in mixed company here? What's going on with ten virgins? How many does a groom need? Uh, this sounds like a, you know, an ancient Jewish version of the TV show The Bachelor or something. I, what's going on here? And the term here just simply means a young unmarried woman. And in a better sort of uh, contemporary understanding of this would be a bridesmaid. Okay, a bridesmaid. That's what's in view here. This is a wedding with the young ladies who are attending to the couple. And these are the bridesmaids. And so from, that point, from this point on, I'm going to try to use that term consistently. So uh, ten virgins here are the same really as ten bridesmaids. And the way this, this typically happened in a Jewish wedding in sort of first century Palestine was that the groom and his groomsmen or his friends would leave his home and they would go to the bride's home and that's where the ceremony would be. 
And then there would be sort of an undetermined amount of time, which is sort of the key piece in this parable here, an undetermined amount of time after the ceremony where the wedding party would then leave the, the uh, bride's home and they would travel back to the groom's home. And this was usually at night, usually in the evening, thus the need for lamps to light the way. And it was the attendant's responsibility to be prepared and to have these lamps and oil to escort them back to what would be a banquet at the groom's house. And so that's sort of how this custom uh, is supposed to go here. And the, really the point of significance in the parable is that there was a long delay between the ceremony and the time to return. Uh, we've all been at those weddings, you know, where we're waiting for the pictures <laughs> And we're at the, maybe we're at the banquet and we're waiting for the wedding party to arrive, but the pictures are going on and on and on, and you wonder, how long do we wait? And this is kind of what is happening here. I was thinking about, um, I'll try to sketch maybe a, a, a modern-day parallel to this would be something like, especially in Alaska, let's just do it in Alaska because it's even more fun. Uh, so let's say that the uh, groom and his groomsmen uh, leave their dry cabin and ski across the valley over to uh, the bride's dry cabin. I don't know why. It's just more fun that way. <laughs> and the wedding ceremony is carried out there. And now it's time to, of course, ski back to the groom's cabin. And so all of the bridesmaids have their headlamps. <laughs> but only half of them have brought batteries. <laughs> so the other half say, give us one of your batteries which is, of course, absurd. That's not going to work. And they say, no, run over to the Quickie Mart and buy your own batteries. <laughs> they get back to the groom's dry cabin where the banquet of MREs and Mountain House, whatever they have, are being served. And when the bridesmaids finally get back to the valley with their headlamps now working properly, they show up at the banquet and the groom effectively says, you didn't come prepared. You weren't ready to transition us from one place to another and be a part of the procession. You just want to come and have my mountain house meals? You want to eat my banquet? You want to eat my banquet? But you didn't. You weren't a part of the procession and carefully engaged in what was going on. This, this is what's going on here. This is the image, if I can sort of bring it to modern life a little bit here. The shortage of oil shows uh, the bridesmaids' short-sightedness, and that's probably not even quite a harsh enough term. Their lack of preparedness, their lack of concern, their lack of real participation in the full event uh, that is actually transpiring. They're just marginally there, just there maybe for the banquet goodies, but not really organically uh, a part of the group. And what we're meant to see here especially is that this uh, is the time delay. That's, that's just a key piece here. Even though, and we, as we bring this all the way forward, even though the Lord's return may take a long time, the punch to us modern day is we have to be prepared at any time, at every time. Not just waiting for the last minute, Uh, but prepared well in advance. Uh, So just some points of application here. There seems to be a point uh, that we're kind of provoked with that 
each of us personally must be ready. Uh, That is, you you can't get into heaven by borrowing someone else's faith. Where these bridesmaids are looking to sort of, hey, I, I wasn't prepared, but you clearly are. Can I have some of what you have? It's too little, too late. You, you, we each of us have to be prepared ourselves. We have to be prepared by having responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ with repentance and with faith. And we can't borrow the salvation of another, whether it be our parents or grandparents or friends. We can't just be in close approximation with those who are ready. They're ready. I'll just write on their coattails. Each of us has to be personally ready. Um, and then I think a, a second thing here. Uh, we see that sort of five are unprepared and, and they try to borrow the oil and they can't. Eventually what they try to do is they scurry off to buy oil or in our parable, they scurry off to buy batteries at the quickie mart, right? Which brings about really the second warning of the parable, which is this, that those who hope uh, to wait for the last minute to get right with the Lord uh, will find out that oftentimes they're past the point of no return. That it's too little too late. So not only can you not borrow faith from others, uh, you can wait too long and flat out miss your chance. And Jesus here portrays himself in, I think, a really edgy way. When, when the bridesmaids who are unprepared show up to the feast, now having made provisions at the, at the 11th hour, they're shut out. We don't like that. We like to think that, hey, at the very last minute, someone can profess faith like the man on the cross, right? And there's truth to that. Certainly a sincere profession of faith, even at the last minute, is legitimate. And yet, there's this other edge here where Jesus kind of shows himself to be shutting the door, saying, your heart's really not in this. I don't know you. It's, It's not just a, you know, punch the... Punch the button here. There is a relational connection that must occur. And the fact that these bridesmaids did not come prepared to be a part of the procession shows that they had no real interest in being in the relationship. They're coming only to the party for the table feast. But they are not a conscientious member of the wedding procession itself. And they find themselves outside looking in. And that is the warning. That is the warning to us. We are to get right with the Lord now. We are to know him now. We are to love God now and respond to his invitation of, of uh, forgiveness through repentance and faith. We are to do that now and orient our lives around him now. God is not one who will be fooled by the 11th hour antics. You won't trick him. If your heart was never in it, you won't be with him. Uh, I, I think of the caution from Hebrews 3. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Uh, that's what the scriptures tells us. Uh, this parable is uh, where it sort of speaks about endurance. It speaks about being ready. It speaks about having sort of this oil, so to speak. This is not an encouragement to buy a generator or a bunker or a stash of MREs or uh, ammunition so that we might outlast the apocalypse. That's not the point. The point here is to be spiritually prepared 
we're essentially told this return is going to take time, and that time could lull some to sleep, thinking they have forever to decide. But the real genuine step of faith is made in the here and the now, where one's life is oriented around our Savior. Don't wait. Don't wait. The second point here we see, we, we move into a, another parable, uh, is, is, that, is this, Christian be investing God's resources. In other words, uh, now that we've sort of been encouraged to get on uh, with our preparation, to each of us be spiritually ready, to be a part of this wedding party, to be a part of the procession, not just the end banquet, but to be a part of the whole thing and the whole life of God, it sort of begs the question, well, what should we be doing then? Having made this decision for the Lord, how ought that to, uh, how should that characterize my life? What should my life be like? And here we are given a picture of how that might play out. And it means investing God's resources entrusted to us. Verse 14. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, notice again, here's our duration piece. We see this in both the first and now the second parable, the long time. So Jesus is consistently teaching about enduring for Uh, his return, which would be a long time off. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold uh, brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you've entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you're a hard man. Harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seeds. So I was afraid. And I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So again, in this second parable, we're immediately presented with uh, this sense of delay again. That's a common trait in these first two parables. Uh, The master's away on a long journey or a long time. And as we can see here, he has expectations of those who have been left behind, those who have been left with something. They have responsibilities in his absence. Uh, Now, some of your translations use the word, and they don't use bags of gold. Your Your translation will use the word talents, right? 
And, and I, I'm, I want to just draw a little attention to this. Uh, so, so often people think that means talents as though one is talented, and that's what's going on. And that's really not what it is. A talent is a unit of measurement. It's a unit of weight. And so it was a measurement of gold or of, of some precious metal of some kind. And th- that was the talent that, that one was left with in the parable. So I actually like the 2011 version of the NIV translating it into bags of gold. So we don't mix up the parable here. Okay. But that's, so that's what's going on here. But the point being made here is that we cannot hide what has been entrusted to us. I, I, this past week as I was studying, what really stood out to me was the accusation of the master to the servant. You lazy, wicked servant. It was this laziness that was really prodded. The man positions himself as, well, I was afraid, and I'm really acting in your best interest, and I don't want to lose anything, so I went and I hid this. But what's exposed is really the laziness in this particular man. He knows the heart and the spirit of his master. He knows his master is entrepreneurial. He knows his master goes looking for places to expand his wealth and his reach and goes to places where he hasn't harvested, where he hasn't sown, and gathers where he hasn't scattered seed. He is ambitious. He looks to gain. So the servant knows that's his master's heart. And yet in contrast to that, simply buries it. It's, there's an incongruence there. And what he's really being identified here is as lazy. He couldn't be bothered to be ambitious as his master is. And so I think the question to us is, what is it that has been entrusted to each of us? What has God, what has our master left to us to be stewards of? And how are we stewarding what has been left to us? Uh, certainly our finances is something to consider. And I, I can't walk past this point without saying we are some of the richest people on planet earth in the history of the world. How do we handle what God has entrusted to us? There's our spiritual gifts, and you may be sitting there going, yeah, I keep hearing people talk about spiritual gifts. I've heard that phrase before. I have no idea what my spiritual gift is. And I just want to tell you, every Christian has at least one, usually a couple, sometimes a a bit of a cluster that fit together. And you should know what it is because it's something God has given to you that you are to be a steward of. It's a trust, something that you are to utilize for the people of God. Uh, If you would take out your pen and just write down these four passages, I'm going to direct you to four passages that identify uh, spiritual gifts that God has given to his people. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. These are Four different passages of scripture that identify spiritual gifts that God has given. I don't think it's absolutely exhaustive, but I think we find a large large listing of them here. And one of the best things that you can do, look at it yourself. See if one or two pop out that you think this is uh, who I am. But maybe the most important thing you can do is to go to other believers. Go to the body of Christ. Go go to a community of people that know you. Go to your your spouse, uh, close friends, and ask them, what do you think is my spiritual gift? As you see God work in and through my life, how do you see him using me either in your life or in others? 
and very likely your, your, your peer network will have it more closely or more accurate than you yourself might even have it. Because again, the whole point is not that we would just possess a spiritual gift, it's that we would share it. And it's the body of Christ, I think, who more accurately identifies this is how you use your gift and bless us with it. And so ask them and kind of zero in on that and then just be aware. This is something God has entrusted to me. For the benefit of the body of Christ, I am to be using this. I think one other area of stewardship, and this might, this one isn't commonly talked about, but is our bodies, our health, our, our overall condition, our fitness. Um, I remember Pastor Paul Holmes, my predecessor, about 15 years ago, preaching a sermon on stewardship, and he mentioned our physical bodies. And he said, you know, each one of you really should have a family doctor or a personal doctor. And I thought, that's true. It was just sort of so, so common and just so every day that I didn't really think about it, but it was profound. We should be caring for these bodies that God has given to us. They're the place that we live in and do all of our ministry from. And if we're not taking care of these bodies, we're really eroding opportunities to be useful for the kingdom of God in every other way. If this is the tent that I'm, into, I'm to dwell in now, then I want to be faithful with it. There's our, our businesses, our influence, our education, the knowledge that we might have. My encouragement to you would be to take stock of your life and the resources entrusted to you. Take a look at it as a spiritual portfolio. This is what God's given to me. How am I uh, using it for him and for his kingdom? The second thing I think we see here is, um, so we can't, we can't hide what has been entrusted to us, but secondly, we can't avoid all risk either. And I think if we take the man at his word here, and actually it seems like there's more going on, but if we were to take the man at his word here, he's afraid to risk. That's what he says. Uh, And I think there are a lot of Christians who feel the same way. Maybe God has given me this spiritual gift, or he's giving me these resources, or this home, or this whatever, this business, these different things that I am to be uh, using for his kingdom in a trust. But sometimes I think we're afraid that we will simply get hurt if we venture out with these things. And I will just tell you this. You will. So let me encourage you. If you venture out and you use the gifts and resources that God has entrusted to you, you will experience some pain. You will get hurt. I can tell you, I absolutely have been hurt myself in my life and time in ministry. Um, The first time I preached a sermon, it was bad. (laughs) It was really bad. It didn't go well. And I remember thinking, maybe I should hang it up. And this isn't what God has for me. I don't know. Um, if you use your gift of compassion in other people's lives, there's a good chance you'll be taken advantage of often. Uh, If you use your resources and you are, maybe your spiritual gift is giving and you are generous, uh, it's true. Some people will start eyeing your generosity. It it will happen. Uh, It's true that you may be used by some who are just looking for more from you. Or you may give with the best of intentions and you may have worked really hard and careful and been judicious so that you might have something to give. And it's true that some may not use the resources as well. 
uh, as you carefully cultivated them. It will happen. It will happen. Uh, If you have a gift of service and you come into people's lives and you serve them and you take on the hard tasks, uh, you will get dumped on. Because people will know you as one who is a servant and can be asked to do all kinds of things. I I wish it were otherwise. But I'm just being honest with you. Is this not your experience? This is the way life is. We live with humans who have a sinful nature. If we we use the resources God has entrusted to us, we're going to get burned. My encouragement is get over it and move on. (laughs) Because you're not accountable to the person next to you. You're accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will stand before him, and you might, you will have, you'll be forced to say, I know that you're ambitious, Lord, for people to know you. I know that you're ambitious to grow your kingdom. And so I, who didn't want to be hurt, went and took my resource and stuck it in the ground. I don't want to risk. We can't do that. We're going to stand before the Lord, and what do we want to hear? We want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Maybe there'll be some consolation. Yeah, you got burned a bunch, but well done. You trust things to me. We must be entrepreneurial for the kingdom of God. Let me ask you the question. If God were to audit your resources or your kingdom efforts, whatever, however you want to draw that out, how would you fare? Which of these three servants would you be? Would you have doubled your money? Or doubled your impact? Or would you have added to it? Uh, Or would you be marked by laziness or fear? Um, I think one of the fascinating things about this parable is that our stewardship of what has been trusted to us here on the earthly plane has significance for the life to come. For those who have been ambitious, those who have ventured, those who have risked, those who were trying to make scores for the kingdom of God, there is a sense that in the life to come, there is more responsibility that will be given to us there. There is some kind of an honor or a reward for us there. But to those who simply hid, there's quite a, quite a negative comment made at the end of the parable. So again, take an inventory of your spiritual for- portfolio, your finances, your spiritual gifts, your knowledge of the kingdom of God, your, your health, your business, your influence, your education. And ask the question, does my stewardship warrant more responsibilities from my king or less? Would he want to give me more because of my faithfulness or might he want to take away? We come to the last picture here. And this, this uh, kind of sharp edge is given to not just to disciples of Jesus, but really to all mankind to be prepared for judgment. Look at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. Hear that again. As too many people want to just treat Christianity as though it were just a private marginalized faith on the side. Good enough for us, but not something that all people will have to be accountable to, right? But here we see all the nations will be gathered before him. All people will answer to the Lord, not just those who chose him. This isn't an optional faith. It's the only faith. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me 
something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger and eating clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Whew. Parables and these, they're just easy stuff, right? Just light, lighthearted. Uh, this isn't a parable, of course. This is, this is just a straight teaching and an image that God, is, God the Son is using here about the future. And what we find here, the, really, that there are two coming judgments. There are two coming judgments. Uh, one is known as the great white throne. It is the judgment where God separates out those uh, who belong to him and those who do not. Uh, the sheep are his through faith. In Jesus Christ. And that is the only way that they become his. Through repentance and faith. The goats are sort of culled out. Because of their rejection of Jesus. Or I would say it this way. Even passivity is rejection. There's no middle ground. There's not faith and pseudo faith. There's faith and there's no faith. And no faith calls you out of this. And that's sort of what's, what's pictured here. And the teaching is clear that only believers will inherit the kingdom of God. I keep going forward. Sorry about that. Only believers will inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, verse 34. Then the king will say to those in his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Here's the kicker of the parable. Here's what surprises us, right? On what basis is this determined? On what basis is their eternal place determined their love for God is actually judged by how they love other people that's what authenticates their faith I mean we're we're sort of prepared for Jesus to say that we have to receive his gospel and profess faith in him and those things are true but here's the kicker in the parable the thing that authenticates that that's true is that we care for those that God loves that our love for God shows up in love for those that he loves And to the extent that we do that or don't do that, we verify or nullify our actual love for God. And that's the real kicker and the punch of this passage here. True love for God is verified by loving the least of these. Not just the good looking or the funny or the educated or the well-dressed or the my kind of people. When you look after the least of these, He says, you did it unto me. And then the real hard word, when you haven't done it for the least of these, 
you haven't done it unto me. It is this practice of loving those around us, particularly the least of these, that either authenticates or nullifies our faith. That's the real proof that one who knows God and loves God. Um, Finally, we see here, we enter the kingdom by faith, but this faith is evidenced by loving works. Martin Luther said it so well, and by the way, this is the 500th uh, anniversary of uh, the Protestant Reformation. Uh, My wife is reading several books right now about Luther, and so we're getting all kinds of tidbits at home, which is fun. Uh, Some of it's good. Some of Luther was a mess, to be honest with you, but... uh, He is well-spoken when he says this, that mankind is saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Um, And so in Jesus' final portrayal here, he would have us be ready for the coming judgments. Uh, The great right throne is where we are separated out as sheep or goats, those who belong to him, those who do not. The second judgment is what is known as the judgment seat of Christ. And this is not something to fear, but this is something for the Christian to look forward to. Only Christians will be there. It is at the judgment seat of Christ, and I think the best way to look at it is as an awards ceremony, where the Lord evaluates things done in the body, whether good or bad, and determines what is worthy of reward. No consequence is being doled out there, only reward for that which has been faithfully done. But the reality is all of us must appear before the great right throne to see if we are his or not. And as Christians, we will also be evaluated for what is worthy of reward and what is not. And so what all of these sort of have in common here, the two parables and then this final closing of preparation for uh, the judgment, what all three have in common is this thread of preparedness. We have to be ready for the long delay, for the long journey. We have to be ready for what is coming. We have to be spiritually prepared, not trying to borrow someone else's faith, not waiting until the last minute to get right with the Lord. We have to be prepared for coming judgments. One determines your acceptance into the kingdom of God. The other determines your eternal reward. We prepare for Christ's return with gospel readiness. We respond in repentance and faith. And we orient our lives around the coming kingdom of God, looking to be busy about its expansion and scoring and being entrepreneurial for God's kingdom. And that, Christian, is how we prepare. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, as we read the teaching of Jesus, we are constantly provoked with the edge of it, the edginess of it. Um, We are thankful that He prepared us for a long delay, uh, for time between uh, the wedding ceremony and the banquet, so to speak. Uh, Lord, we want to be those who are ready, ready to be a part of the procession, uh, ready to serve the groom, uh, not those who are just looking for the 11th hour decision, standing on the outside looking in. God, we want to be ready. We want to be prepared by using the gifts that you have given to us spiritual gifts and resources and trusted that we might be about the expansion of your kingdom and not lazy and afraid. God, we want to be ready so that when we come before your throne, the great white throne of judgment, we can stand securely because of Christ Jesus. 
that we could say, Lord, I have no right to be here of myself, but because Jesus died for me and I've received that, then I look forward to coming into your kingdom. And when we are evaluated at the great, not at the great white throne, but the judgment seat of Christ, Lord, may we be confident and excited because we have spent our lives serving you and rejoice in the rewards that you will give. So thank you for helping us to be ready. Uh, Lord, may you do the work in each person's heart uh, so that they would respond properly. We pray in Christ's name, amen.